Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Greg Krasnov, founder and CEO of Tonic, a digital bank in the Philippines operating with its own banking license. Tonic is backed by major industry investors, including Sequoia Capital, Point72 Ventures, Insignia Ventures, and Quedance Partners. Greg is a serial entrepreneur at heart and launched his first business at the age of 18. Prior to starting Tonic, Greg also invested in, co-founded, and chaired four other successful fintech startups through his Singapore-based fintech venture builder called Forum. He has lived in eight countries across three continents and currently resides in Singapore. He's also a talented musician, and as a bonus, we have included some of his work at the end of the interview. And now join me in a fun conversation with Greg Krasnov. Greg, thank you for joining us on the Words of Fintech podcast. We're very excited to have you here all the way from Singapore. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background? Thank you, Miguel. Excited to be here, man. Yeah, uh, my background is I've been in around startups for quite some time. I was originally a private equity guy, but uh, I described myself as a recovering private equity guy. So a decade of that was enough. Taught me a lot of things, but then I jumped over to the entrepreneurial side and um, started, built, and uh, sold a consumer finance bank in uh, Eastern Europe in a place called Ukraine. It was a private equity-backed project, and we built out about a half a billion dollar balance sheet funded with retail deposits and with unsecured consumer finance on the asset side, with full bank license, etc. We sold that about five years ago. It was a very nice return for our investors. So after that, I decided to move to Asia because in Southeast Asia, I saw very much the same trend taking place in consumer finance, retail finance, as I watched before in emerging Europe but at a much earlier stage. So I kind of said, okay, I got a bit of a crystal ball here. I've seen this movie before for 20 years. I've seen how it plays out. So let's play it out now on a much bigger scale. So I started co-founding fintech companies here, and I've uh, co-founded four of those before founding Tonic, all in and around consumer finance space. So a number of lessons learned around that, but all companies are still alive, doing well. They've all done their Series A and now moving towards Series B. One of them has been exited already. But one thing that I saw is um, definitely a very exciting opportunity here for unsecured consumer lending across the region. And, you know, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines are all kind of breaking through this middle class, uh, three to 4,000 GDP per capita level, which, you know, kind of hockey sticks to consumer finance. But to do that at scale, you really need to have retail deposits on the liabilities. So that's how we started Tonic. I also saw an opportunity in deposits because the population here, by and large, is very discouraged by what the banks are offering to them on the liabilities on the deposit side, savings account side. So I saw the opportunity to marry uh, the two together and build an institution that would take consumer savings and deposits and lend them out as unsecured consumer finance. Uh, Very much a similar business model as Tinkoff is doing and done very successfully in Russia or New Bank has done really well in Brazil. So we're much more about savings and loans than about current accounts. And that's, I guess, if there's one thing to remember about Tonic, it's going to be that. That makes sense. And so you weren't the first time entrepreneur when you moved to Southeast Asia, but sounds like it was your first time living in the region. 
what parallels did you find and what surprises did you find launching a company in, in Singapore for the region? Well, Singapore is my eighth country of residence. So I've bounced around a lot. And I always try to adapt and learn from the cultures that surround me. I find Southeast Asia an absolutely fascinating space because there are so many different cultures here. And it's at the intersection of um, some major global trends. Every country is different. You know, Thailand is very different from Malaysia and very different from Philippines and Indonesia, etc. But you have, you know, the very attractive thing about Southeast Asia is the three largest countries in the region, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Philippines, with cumulative population of about half a billion people. All these three countries are now breaking through the kind of three and a half thousand uh, USD GDP per capita level. So very, very exciting point to be. They all have somewhat different drivers, but another thing that is similar in these three countries, and that's very different from what we've seen in uh, emerging Europe, is the age of the consumers. Consumers are by and large very young. You know, average age of a Filipino is 24 years old. You know, uh, as a result, he's absolutely digitally native. He has absolutely no interest in ever walking into a bank branch again if his life depended on it. He wants to do everything through his smartphone. He's spending four hours a day on Facebook. Uh, Philippines is number one in the world on Facebook use. So uh, as you can imagine, you know, that creates a very constructive climate for all things digital. And financial services is only one of these. And I think this is what makes, you know, this mobile first, smartphone first, digital first mentality that enables leapfrogging markets is very different than what we've seen in emerging Europe, where, you know, browser-based things still hold a significant proportion of the market. Asia and Southeast Asia as well is very mobile first. Yeah, definitely some parallels also with major economies in Latin America, like Mexico and Brazil. Interesting. So of all the markets within Southeast Asia, how did you land on your strategy to start with the Philippines for Tonic? Yeah, Miguel, that's an interesting question. The countries that are of most interest from the point of view of the core business proposition, lending and the deposit proposition, you know, it's Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, to some extent, Myanmar. Urban India is also very exciting. But uh, for us, given the fact that our business model is based on taking deposits, savings accounts, lending them into loans, that business model is very difficult to execute without your own bank license. So I think Newbank has been very lucky to have found some partnerships in their market, but I understand they're converting into their own bank license now. Tinkoff, from day one, they bought a little bank and became a bank because they understood that you know they couldn't run what they needed to run if they had to depend on a bank partner. And there have been a number of examples around the world where people have been able, for example, to build the liability side of the balance sheet. But then the partner bank would say, hey, I'm taking the risk of these deposits and I'm the one providing the government insurance on the deposits. So I'm not going to lend those out and take the credit risk. And how the hell do I control the credit risk then? So for us, the really important part of the equation was where can we achieve having our own bank license from day one. And we found a really uh, great partner in the Filipino regulator, the Banco Central and G Filipinas. That's a fantastic institution in that they're very proactive in uh, trying to develop all things digital. 
for the improvement of the service for the consumer in the financial sector. They have a huge financial inclusion problem. Philippines is only about 30% banked. So 70% of the adult population is actually outside of the banking system. Um, and uh, the regulator understands that uh, the way to solve that is only through digital, because only digital provides uh, cost advantages and the access to alternative data sources and all the other things that you need to service these customers profitably. So we had a really good dialogue with them going back a year and a half when we first approached them. And uh, they recommended that we go and apply for a rural bank license. It's one of the easiest license categories under the existing Filipino legislation. Their parliament is working on developing a digital bank license category, but the central bank needed a pilot case. You know, they needed to create a sandbox and learn with somebody in that sandbox. So they suggested that we go and apply for that and become their sandbox. And that's a regime uh, under which we're now rolling out. So that's, that's really the answer why Philippines. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And even in the U.S., where the partner bank, issuer bank is pretty popular, you have already some of the large new banks opting to apply for their own licenses or even acquire small banks. So that makes sense, uh, not just in, in an emerging market like the Philippines, but also in places like the U.S. or Europe. Let's uh, talk a little bit of how you assembled your team. Where Where is most of your team? How did you find the talent? Did you have any, any challenges in this process? Sure. Well, for better or worse, Miguel, I'm not 30 anymore. You know, I've, uh, I've been a banker for a substantial part of my life, and I'm, you know, in 46 this year. So uh, I have a bias uh, when it comes to, and banking is a very specialized business. You know, it's a business where experience really matters. You know, so uh, I looked for people with experience. So our team, on average, you know, we're all kind of in our early to mid 40s. You know, all of us have kind of done it before, have 20 plus years of experience. You know, my head of ops, for example, this is his fifth gig as a COO of a retail bank. And none of them have been digital banks, but he's been dreaming about building a digital bank for a decade now. So he's finally realizing his dream with us. You know, our CTO is an amazing guy, uh, Ramo Arivul. So Ramo's um, uh, been the chief architect on a dozen of digital channels for big banks around Southeast Asia. And he's been, again, itching to actually do a pure play digital proposition because he sees how the incumbents propositions are woefully insufficient to meet the customer desires. And he's finally, you know, with the tonic, he has the opportunity to realize the vision. So it's really, um, you know, a combination of uh, people with uh, quite a bit of experience in banking and technology. We're also building, you know, a, a big team. So we're basically our three main hubs are um, Manila, obviously, where the bank is going to be operating. Uh, the ops team is going to be most of the headcount there, the contact center operation, the bank licenses there. So we have to have all the compliance and risk management there as well. Uh, Singapore is where we base our architecture and uh, product functions because it's really difficult to find people like that in Manila. And then we have a big R&D center in India, in Chennai, in Tamil Nadu which is where all of our developers are. And we're also building up our risk management team out of there because they have some really good uh, risk talent there. We've also built a mini hub of uh, UX and design in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine. 
because those people we found it really difficult to find anywhere in Southeast Asia or even in India. And uh, given our historical contacts in Eastern Europe, it was um, easier for us to source people there. So our, we have a mini hub for design over there. The story of Tonic has clearly resonated with some major investors like Sequoia or Point72. Can you tell us a little bit about the road of fundraising, particularly as a company servicing the Filipino market? Yeah, we've been very, very lucky to attract the attention of some really top-notch investors. And I think this, you know, the investor group that we've assembled, you know, with the Sequoia, Point72, also Insignia and Credence out of Singapore, you know, as well as our group of angel investors uh, from the early days, it's really a big differentiating factor in that it gives us access to talent, access to expertise of uh, similar plays across the globe, really. That's a very, very powerful differentiator for us going forward. I think um, the thing that attracted the investors to us is a couple of things. Uh, obviously, the business opportunity in the Philippines is extremely compelling on its own. But uh, I think the, what we've heard from the investors is the, the bench depth of our team is something that is a little atypical for a neobank startup anywhere around the globe or a startup in Southeast Asia. I saw some stats a couple of weeks ago. Somebody assessed the backgrounds of the neobank founders around the globe of kind of the top 20 or 20, 30 neobanks. And it's surprising how few of them have done banking before. So, you know, they do have a category of banking, but actually like know the names. And I know those are investment bankers, not commercial or retail bankers, right? So, which, you know, investment bankers, you know, as I said, I'm a recovering private equity guy myself. So like, you know, um, it's kind of, uh, you know, being a consultant or being an investment banker just doesn't prepare you in the same way for running a regulated operational entity. And especially in such heavily regulated market as banking. You know, you really need to have a different mentality. You need to work with a regulator. You're in partnership with the government. You know, the government is insuring your deposits, but you're in partnership with them. You know, you need to make them feel comfortable. You need to do things in a way that they will find acceptable. That's a thing that most people outside of the banking industry have a really hard time with. So I think it's you need to build a unique culture that melts together technology and, you know, this whole approach of running a regulated business. And that's a really interesting challenge that we now have ahead. But I think, you know, the fact that we recognize that there are these two sides that need to be married, at least that's what we've heard back from the investors, is something that is probably fairly different. Not a lot of our comps have assembled kind of both sides of that. Yeah, you mentioned culture, and that's something I want to talk about. But before we go there, running a retail bank requires a very thorough understanding of credit. And this is, I think, the point that you're referring to. What's your approach to credit? Who are your main partners and how are you building your credit underwriting capabilities? Credit underwriting is absolutely at the heart of any credit business. So you can't outsource that. You can't really rely on a third party. You know, I don't believe, like I never believed into these, you know, peer-to-peer lending models where, you know, you kind of take a credit decision and then try to shove the risk onto somebody else. And, you know, an unsuspecting bystander, I mean, gosh, well, we've been through that and we've, you know, stuffed Icelandic grandmas with, you know, kind of uh, subprime 
uh, you know, kind of liabilities. And we've seen what happened to the world when that happened, right? I just think that, you know, credit and understanding credit, taking credit risk and doing that on your own balance sheet in a very responsible manner, that's something that should be the core of any lending business. So uh, we've tried to put together, you know, a, a decent know-how pack around that. Our CRO, uh, Nilotpul, he's got about 25 years of uh, retail credit management experience at banks uh, around emerging markets. He's worked in India, in Russia, in the Middle East, at some of the you know big brand names uh, in retail lending there. We're partnering with a number of world-class suppliers around alternative data scoring, around our uh, lending decision-making systems. But at the core, of course, we will have to develop our own data analytics, basically uh, proper you know, machine learning algorithms that will have to train and that will make good credit decisions for us. We are introducing risk-based pricing. So this is going to be uh, another nice differentiator for us because we think we understand pretty well how to create, how to work with predictive analytics, create scorecards and, you know, other analytical tools to make credit decisions. So um, uh, risk-based pricing is going to be a big chunk of what we do so that uh, we can maximize the acceptance rate. You know, if somebody has a low credit score, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is a bad customer. You know, they might be a bad customer at 50% APR, but they might be a fantastic customer at 89% APR, uh, you know. So this is something that, uh, you know, the bank that we built in Ukraine, for example, were the first guys in the market to introduce RBP, risk-based pricing. And that really helps your economics if you're able to tone that right. Uh, alternative data is another big one for us. I was actually a co-founder of a company called Credilab which is a market leader now in Southeast Asia in alternative uh, data scoring. They have about 50 banks on the platform. They were the winner of last year's number one prize at the Singapore FinTech Festival. So these guys really know what they're doing in terms of working with the digital footprint of the consumer for credit risk. You know, and it's a smartphone in particular uh, has proven to be uh, probably one of the best sources of uh, data for uh, credit decisions, if you know how to work with that data source. Uh, you know, other sources that people have tried to make work, you know, social media is too unstructured to be of use for anything other than uh, anti-fraud, really. You know, psychometrics, uh, you know, are too cumbersome and too painful for the customer. So it's really kind of down to telco and device data, uh, the smartphone device data. And fortunately for us, the absolute majority of our customers all of them will be on a smartphone device by default. And so we'll actually be able to score them from the moment of onboarding. And if they pass that score, uh, we'll be offering them a credit line from the moment of onboarding. So we think that's going to be a very big differentiator for us as well. Only 4% of the Filipinos that borrow are borrowing from banks in the Philippines, which is an amazingly low, low number. The absolute majority of them still borrow from friends and family. And we're hoping to be able to offer something in between. Oh, so your competition is aunts and parents. Absolutely. Our competition is aunties and uncles, and those have some advantages and some disadvantages. There's a, a lot of social pain if you default, and they might not ask you for a lot of documentation, uh, but also the costs of default are very different. So I think there's definitely going to be a huge swath of the population that will want to avail of our service. Right, very different uh, credit underwriting model there. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So uh, going back to culture, uh, can you tell us about the type of culture you're building at Tonic? Was this device from the very beginning? Did you have 
a clear idea of what kind of company culture you wanted to create on day one? Well, there are two parts to how we define culture. One is the values and the other one is the motivation. And I'm a very big believer in culture, not only as a function of leadership, but also in a service organization, the absolute bulk of what happens in the company will be driven by culture, right? It's, it's a family. It's a, you know, it's a group of people. It's a tribe. The tribe needs to hang together, you know, and that tribe needs to look alike to feel like a tribe. So you need to really define well and articulate very clearly what those values are and the motivations are. And then look specifically for people that will fit with that. Because if they're not, then the organization will reject them and these people will be literally you know, unable to perform inside the organization. So it's hard to define on day one. There's different philosophies on this. My personal philosophy, and you know, I've been through multiple startups now, is I prefer to first put together the top team. And when I put together the top team, I do it more through intuition in terms of the match with my values. But then once you have the top team, then you sit down with the top team and I run through this exercise, which is values and motivations revealing. And again, it's kind of a moderated experience that I've picked up the technique for that uh, probably 20 years ago from some uh, startup gurus. Uh, so we've done that. We've articulated both our values and our motivations. Uh, you know, and our values are very atypical of what a typical banker's values. For example, one of our five values is sense of humor. Uh, you know, we'll want to have people with a good sense of humor. Uh, another one of our values is street smart. A street smart is not something you hear very often as a value of a banker. You know, so for example, in our uh, motivations, our number one motivation for all of us being here is we're building a legend. We want to build a legend. We're really driven to do something completely different, something that really goes sky high, becomes a legend. And somebody who is there to just make a buck, well, they should probably go work at another bank because, you know, you don't build a legend by, you know, sitting on your proverbial behind, you know, you do it by being proactive. So with that come a whole set of additional motivations that we also look for. It's we look for people who want to make a difference. We'll look for people who have a massive creative impulse and want to build from scratch. We'll look for people who want to make things happen. Yeah, I'm actually quoting, you know, from our uh, values and motivations slide. So these are not typical banking motivations. So for us to find people who have both the skills and the values has been a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, it's even a challenge to find recruiters for me who can recruit banking and, you know, ops people but who also fit into our value structure. So they'll sniff out the people with the right values. But, you know, that's just something you have to do if you're building, you know, a company that you want to be legendary and you really want to take it to a new level. I think it's the first time that someone has told us about sense of humor being part of their values, but I actually love it. Where did this come from? <laughs> it's, uh, look, the way that I do this moderation is with the team is uh, it's a little trick I got. I ask people, okay, if you were to fly to the moon on a two-year mission uh, and you could take one person with you out of everybody you know, who would you take? Uh, and then, you know, why do you pick that specific person? And then when people start describing that person, like that's when these values come out. This is actually the technique of how we've done this. And I've done this, you know, as I said, many, many times before this. And that was just like one thing that happened to be a very shared value among all of our top team. We all seem to have a very healthy sense of humor, for better or worse, you know. 
No, that's excellent. That's excellent. And how has this culture fared in the face of COVID now that everyone's remote? It's interesting you ask. Actually, we put in place culture in the face of COVID. You know, and we're at the moment we're spread across nine or actually ten different locations because various members of our team got stuck in outside of our four three and a half hubs. So uh, we only put in place the culture and the values about two months ago, and uh, we've done that through a Zoom call, and we've been you know then reinforcing that through Zoom calls. We announced our first value champion last week, you know, and we've been kind of uh, promoting that and uh, driving people to perform with those values. But I think it's really helped us gel together because once people understand what is expected as the values and the motivations, it's much easier for you to get cohesion despite the difficult and complicated remote working mode. You know, in normal times on a new team like that, I would have brought them all together, you know, for a week-long team building, I don't know, running around the jungle, you know, jumping on tree canopies or God knows what, right? But, you know, make people really, you know, sleep in tents and, you know, feel close to each other. I'm unable to do that. So uh, putting this team and gelling this team together under conditions of COVID and across nine different geographies, I really don't think we could have done it without putting a huge emphasis on values and motivations and then over-communicating on that. And then uh, we're also running this very, very rigid rhythm now of uh, we call them water cooler chats and happy hours across the organization where it's informal. Yeah, So you do, you mix and match people from all over the place, give them a chance to communicate outside of work, just exactly to create the dynamic like normally they would have had of, you know, going for a beer after work with their colleagues. Except in this case, like the group of four or five people is kind of randomly chosen and they might be in five different countries. But they all like after work, they go for a beer on Zoom and then chit chat. And, you know, they have some warm up questions that we share with them so they know how to talk to each other, etc. So it's been an interesting challenge, but I think values and motivations have been really helpful for us. You mentioned a little bit about the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Southeast Asia and the Philippines. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this, this scene? Is it booming? Do you think there's a lot more room to grow? And how do you fit within the ecosystem? I'm not very well familiar with the startup ecosystem at large, but I can talk to the fintech ecosystem. You know, I think in the fintech ecosystem, compared to... Europe, for example, which I'm also, you know, familiar with, or Eastern Europe, you seem to have a much lower number of seasoned entrepreneurs. So most of the people that go and do startups in fintech in Southeast Asia, you know, they would be kind of guys in their, you know, early 30s, maybe, and some of them even kind of late 20s, you know, guys that kind of want to go out there and be the next fintech hero. You know, I got a bit of an issue with that, not for being ageist, but for, you know, it's kind of fintech is a little like biotech for me, you know, unless you've kind of done it before at scale, you know, it's it's very know-how heavy type of space. So if you haven't really done the domain expertise learning curve, then you got to end up doing that, you know, with the investor's money. And so we've seen actually quite a lot of capital going into the fintechs in the region. But there's, for example, the digital lending here has been a real boom and bust. You know, and I've been writing and blogging about the upcoming bust for three years now. And here it is. And guess what? You know, when most of the entrepreneurs are, you know, in their 30s and they haven't seen a credit cycle 
and they don't know that they need to be hiring, you know, chiefs of risk that know what they're doing. And they're borrowing wholesale money from risk-averse investors instead of building, you know, organic long-term liabilities. You know, they're asking for trouble. When on top of that, the VCs who also haven't seen it before, you know, are investing at uh, in these lending companies at multiples of, uh, you know, price to disbursement. Uh, so basically encouraging the entrepreneurs to think of nothing but disbursement growth. You know, that's that's really, really promoting trouble. You know, lending business is one where sales are guaranteed. I can take a suitcase of $100 bills. I can go stand on a street corner. I can hand them out. I'll do incredible volume. Incredible. My turnover will be off the charts. So I can sell all the money that I'm ready to put out there. Uh, You know, that's sales and growth in a credit business is never a problem. The problem is how the hell do you get it back and how the hell do you make a buck on, you know, the buck that you deploy. So uh, the people that don't understand that and that promoted these entrepreneurs to just drive for pure disbursements, you know, a lot of these people are getting burned. Um, And I think, you know, to be fair, they probably deserve to be burned because, you know, they, they, they needed to learn the lesson and it'll make the ecosystem more healthy going forward. So I think on the other hand, in payments, there's been uh, quite a lot of activity here as well. And, you know, the penetration of the uh, financial services is low. So uh, the payment space has seen also a lot of investment, probably an overinvestment as well for different reasons than lending. You know, I think people have seen, you know, the big Chinese players coming back, some top players per market. But you got to remember, you know, payments is a very oligopolistic type of business. Uh, you know, only the top one or two or three max players per market will survive. You know, it's a classic sort of a marketplace thing. So when the VCs are out there backing, you know, the number eight or number nine wallet in the market, you got to be asking yourself, hey, you know, is all that customer acquisition cost ever coming back, right? So I think, you know, there's been probably a lot of irrationality in the market as well. But this end of the cycle that we're observing right now, it's going to clean some of that up. And uh, I think people are going to learn some valuable lessons. So the companies that will survive the cycle will definitely be very well positioned for the future. That makes sense. That makes sense. So talking about the road ahead for Tonic, what's your vision for the next few years? Well, we're... Operating in a very large market, you know, Philippines population is over 100 million, and that's not counting the Filipinos that are working abroad. Out of that 100 million, as I said, 70% of the adults are outside of the banking system altogether. So we really see the market as being kind of twofold for us. On one hand, you know, there's about 150 to $180 billion retail deposit market. That's enormous. And within that market, over 50% of the consumers are stating verbatim, we're not happy with the digital proposition from our current bank. We want to switch our deposits. So that provides a great opportunity for us to take in the liabilities. Because if we put together a good product on the liability side, a good interest rate, good service, and we don't think it's very difficult to do that, then we can probably appeal to a significant proportion of that switching business. Yeah, and also with a bank license, we have the government-insured deposit capability. So people know that the money they're leaving with us, it's safe. You know, they can trust us. Yeah, we're not just a wallet. No, we're actually a regulated bank. So um, that's kind of one opportunity to switching. Then there's the uh, financial inclusion opportunity. And the financial inclusion, I see it more of a lending opportunity than a deposit opportunity. Because most of the people in the financial inclusion, they might be lower middle class. 
They might not have a lot of savings, but they might have some savings and they might still want a current account, you know, with a debit card and capability to pay online, take money at an ATM, but they will not be the ones that are leaving, you know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar deposit with you. But they will have a very vibrant interest in loans because these are people that are kind of moving up their consumer value chain, as it were, uh, you know, their first port of call is to take an unsecured loan to buy a TV or a fridge or a washing machine. Uh, their next step might be to take a larger loan to buy a used car. You know, uh, as they get older, then their next step would be to take, you know, a mortgage to buy a small apartment or something like this or a house. So there's kind of this consumer value chain and only then do they really become a deposit customer. Yeah. So on the financial inclusion, it's more of a lending business. And we'll be going after that with a variety of uh, revolving unsecured lending products. So we think there is a real big niche there. Philippines is at about a quarter of per capita penetration on secured consumer finance, even compared to Vietnam and Indonesia. So, you know, it's a $10 billion market right now in terms of asset class, waiting to become at least a $50 billion asset class. So very, very sizable opportunity for us. Interesting. Going credit first is actually the opposite strategy of most neobanks around the world, right? That actually go for the debit card first. Look, man, as I said, 90% of those guys, I mean, with all due respect to their entrepreneurship and backgrounds, but they haven't been bankers before. And when you've come from banking, you understand that current account business is a loss leader, has always been a loss leader, and will always be a loss leader. And not charging anything for the current account doesn't make it less of a loss leader. You know, it makes it more of a loss leader. So, like, you really need to understand how you're going to monetize. And I think for a bank, the only proper monetization strategy has got to be lending. So these transactional fees that you get, you know, back from MasterCard, merchants, et cetera, there's just not enough, even nearly, to cover the CAC, which these guys have been incurring. Absolutely. I think that this whole episode can be a lesson on entrepreneurship. But, you know, we do have quite a few listeners who are either entrepreneurs or aspiring founders. What are some of the main lessons that you've learned over your career of multiple successes and multiple startups? Uh, that's a very interesting question, Miguel. Thanks for that. I think probably the number one that I learned when I moved from private equity into being a manager, kind of a big aha moment. I spent 10 years with Excel and PowerPoint, and I learned that, man, none of that really matters if you can't get through to people, <laughs> right? So, like, you know, that old adagi that, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, it really is true. You know, I mean, whatever you need to get done, you need to get it done through people by mobilizing people and relating to people and making people a cohesive organization. So, you know, leadership is not just about saying, hey, this is our beautiful strategy and these are our beautiful numbers. Now let's all go do it. You know, it just doesn't work like that because there's going to be probably about 5% of the population that can be responsive to those types of arguments. But none of them work in real world. They all have gone and worked for investment banks. So, you know, the real people typically respond to other types of motivations, which are much less like numbers driven or like strategy driven. They're much more about, hey, what do I belong to? What is the meaning of what I do every day? You know, how am I doing it with the people that I can be proud of being part of this group of people? 
So these are the types of things that you really need to think about and put together to make the organization a real powerful unit. So that was my biggest lesson learned, I think, over the years of how to get the organization developed and uh, moving forward. Fascinating. Before we go, Greg, I see a guitar behind you. What have been some of your hobbies during quarantine these days? Oh, sure. Uh, well, I've been a musician my whole life and, you know, I have a keyboard here as well. And it's actually, this is my kind of recording station. So please go and look me up on Spotify. I got an album out there and, you know, you can probably Google me and there's a bunch of other places with a bunch of other stuff out there. So I enjoy recording music. I enjoy playing music. That's, that's kind of been uh, one of my hobbies my whole life. Another one has been sailing. You know, I've been a sailor since my 20s. And actually, I've spent, you know, a couple of years uh, living on board a boat with my family, just cruising and operating from aboard a boat. That was something I've always wanted to do. That's how I originally ended up in Asia, you know, on a sabbatical, you know, on a sailboat. So uh, now I cannot sail, but I can play. So I've put back together my home studio and, you know, trying to jam occasionally. Looking forward to putting some of that out and sharing that uh, with your audience as well at some point. Oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll make sure to include a bit of one of your songs at the end of the podcast. <laughs> well greg thank you so much this has been a treat very interesting learning from you your experiences and we're excited about what's to come for tonic thank you Miguel. and once again thanks very much for having me on your show appreciate that, appreciate that, appreciate that, appreciate that.